0: Well, many things in life come with a warning. We're used to warning labels on food, clothes, technology, movies. They kind of prepare us, get us ready to know how to use things properly. And so some warning signs are really useful, like this one we'll see up on the screen. Uh, Danger, crocodiles, no swimming. Others aren't quite as useful like this next one, which says, warning, no swimming if you can't swim. And some are just a little confusing like this one. This is on an emergency door that warns us to panic carefully. (laughs) Seems a bit of a contradiction. And today we're starting our study in the book of Romans and I strongly believe that Romans should come with a warning sign. Perhaps something like this one. Warning, Romans contains powerful, life-changing teaching. Read at your own risk. I mean it. After studying this book, you will find your life irrevocably changed and your mind blown. And if you don't believe me, let me mention three historical figures who experienced this firsthand as they encountered the book of Romans. You can read more about them online if you're interested. Uh, The first one, from the fourth century, there was a man named Augustine. And he was a brilliant man, but very immoral. And he'd studied Christianity, but he had trouble kind of coming to terms with it and making a commitment to Jesus. And one day, he heard a child singing these words, tole lege, tole lege, which means take and read. And so he felt this was a message from God. So he picked up a nearby Bible, opened to a random passage, and read out this from Romans. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. It's Romans 13, verses 13 to 14. And in his autobiography, Augustine writes about this and says that as he finished reading that sentence, he was soundly converted. He then went on, We became a Christian, but he went on to become a bishop and one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church ever. People still read and study his writings. The next person uh, is a monk named Martin Luther from a thousand years later, and he was wrestling with his salvation. See, he knew that God was righteous and that God would judge, and he feared God's judgment, and he felt that he had to try to be righteous himself. But he was burdened by his failings because he never felt good enough. That was until he truly understood Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says this. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. He finally realized that righteousness is not something that we have to generate from within ourselves by our own efforts. Rather, it's a gift from God. God extends his own righteousness to believers and thus brings them into a right standing with himself. And so after understanding this, Luther was transformed and he later played a key role in the Reformation. He led the charge of those who wanted to re-establish the gospel of grace back to the heart of Christian teaching. Uh, 200 years later, there was another man who was wrestling with assurance of salvation. His name was John Wesley. And one day, he heard someone read out from Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And he understood the gospel for the first time. And he later wrote that he felt his heart strangely warmed. He then went on to be instrumental in the rise of evangelicalism and the great revivals. And then 200 years after that, another person was changed by studying the book of Romans. Not an historical figure, but still worth mentioning. uh, My wife, Tracy. She wasn't my wife at the time. Uh, Now, Tracy grew up as a Christian, but it was in her first year of university at at Melbourne, uh, Melbourne University, she went to St. Jude's Anglican Church and heard Peter Adam preach through the Book of Romans, and it just opened her eyes to the wonders of the Gospel. Uh, Then in 2000, transferred to La Trobe University, and she met with our friend Erica, and they read the Book of Romans together. And it was a pivotal time for both of them because it fired them up for the gospel. This book has changed lives. Men and women have been transformed by its message. And many have gone on to do great and wonderful things in the name of Jesus. It's led to social upheaval, cultural changes, reformations. But it's also changed regular people's lives. And they've simply got about quietly being faithful Christians in their home, in their church, in their community. In fact, we're going to highlight some of these stories from DPC people in the coming months. So check out our church's social media for the Gospel and Me posts, uh, the first of which will come out in a couple of weeks. Romans is a dangerous book because it contains a powerful message, a message about God's grace which will change you. And so I've put my warning out there. You've all been warned. So if you want to leave, you can do that now. That's okay. You can duck out now. But if you want to stay, if you want to explore this book and be radically changed, then strap yourself in and get ready as we study this over the coming weeks and months. And we're going to see this evening that Romans, it's powerful because it's about the power of the gospel, the good news. Now before we dig into the teaching of this letter, we need to orientate ourselves. So I want to first show that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome. And you'll see that points on our outlines if you're following along in the connect card. So have a look at Romans verse 1 of chapter 1. I'll read it out. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul makes it clear that Jesus is his master and he has appointed Paul as an apostle who will preach the gospel. This is what gives Paul the authority to write a letter. But who is he exactly writing to? Let's have a look at verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. They are God's people who are called to be holy. They are saints, not because they're morally perfect, but because they've been set apart or sanctified by God to be his holy people. It's about their status. And we learn a little bit more about the Christians in Rome in verse 6. They're referred to as Gentiles. This is what Jewish people would call non-Jews. Now this makes sense that Paul be writing to them because Paul was primarily a missionary to the Gentiles. And so of course he'd write to a church made up of Gentiles. But there are actually several times throughout this letter where Paul addresses Jewish Christians. In fact, Paul sends specific greetings to Jews in chapter 16 at the conclusion of his letter. So are the Roman Christians Gentiles or are they Jews? It's actually a mix of both. And there's a bit of a complex history behind this, which is worth knowing because it helps us in reading this letter. Have a listen to Acts 18, verses 1 and 2, and it'll be up on the screen as well for you to see. Acts 18, 1 and 2. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. So it turns out that Aquila and Priscilla are Jewish Christians. And what's really fascinating about this event is there's actually an historical record of it from outside of the Bible. I listened to Suetonius. He's a Roman historian who wrote in the early 2nd century, and he wasn't a friend to Christians. This is what he wrote. Uh, And he's listing the deeds of the, the Roman emperor Claudius. He wrote this. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Now that Latin name Crestus probably refers to Jesus Christ, coming from the Greek Christos. And scholars, they disagree about what exactly happened in Rome, but it's almost certain that most, if not all, Jews were kicked out of Rome for a time, which actually fits exactly with Acts chapter 18, verse 2. And the emperor, he wouldn't have distinguished between different types of Jews, Christian Jews and non-Christian Jews. They were all booted out. Thus, Aquila and Priscilla arrived in Corinth in time to meet Paul. And so this was probably around 49 AD. Now, it's likely that the Jews then returned to Rome upon Claudius' death in 54 AD. And so that would have enabled the the Jewish Christians to return home. But imagine their shock when they found the church filled with Gentile Christians. It would have created lots of tension and confusion. And so it's into this situation that Paul writes. The church in Rome was a Gentile church made up mostly of Gentile Christians, but there were plenty of Jewish Christians there too. Now one last point about the setting of this letter. Uh, Paul probably wrote in 57 AD, from Corinth, so not long after the Jews had returned. And you'll see, if you look up chapter 15 later, you'll see that Paul was actually on his way to Jerusalem. So he's having a break, writing this letter, but he's on his way to Jerusalem to take a collection for the poor Christians there. Uh, And this helps us to figure out when Paul wrote Romans. So to save some time, I've written some notes that I put in your Connect card. You can read that later uh, if you're interested. But it's likely that Paul wrote in 57 AD from the city of Corinth. So why is all of this historical background important? Am I just showing off that I've been to Bible college or I've read a couple of books? No. See, these details help us understand the context of Romans, what was going on at the time. But these details also show us that the Bible is reliable. So it speaks about real events that happened to real people in real places. And it can be backed up by evidence from outside of the Bible. And so we can have confidence that Jesus truly did send Paul to preach the gospel, that Paul really did write to a group of Christians living in Rome. So let's turn back to our passage now and see what else we can learn about Paul and his mission. The next main point you'll see in the Connect card is that Paul was called to preach the gospel of God primarily to Gentiles. So looking again at verse 1, Paul makes it clear that he serves Jesus as his master. And it was this Jesus who called Paul to be an apostle. That word apostle just means sent one. Paul was called and commissioned by Jesus to go out and preach. You can actually read about his conversion in Acts chapter 9. And what you'll see there is that this event occurred after Jesus had died on the cross and come back to life. So it was the risen Jesus who appeared to Paul and sent him to go preach the good news. And so this was a defining moment for Paul because he couldn't argue with that. He had seen the risen Jesus. And this was also a defining moment for all Christians because it's when Paul was given the seal of approval by Jesus. So we need to listen to him. We need to listen to what we read in Romans because it comes from Jesus' authorized apostle, his representative. And what does Paul preach? Well, the gospel of God. This is the series title for these sermons, The Gospel of God. It's important to get our heads around. The gospel means good news. And we're used to thinking of that good news being about Jesus. But the gospel is also God's gospel because he is the one who devised and enacted the rescue plan. God is the one who saves people. God is the one who makes people holy. So we mustn't think that Jesus had to save us from God the Father while he sat up in heaven being grumpy at people. No, it was because God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Also, since this is God's gospel, we can't change it. It belongs to him and he determines what it's about. So let's turn to verses 2, 3 and 4 to see what this gospel actually is about, what the content is. I'll read the verses out for us. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. God promised the gospel through his prophets men like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi even Moses and Samuel and David, they wrote down messages from God which are preserved for us in what we now call the Old Testament. That's what Paul means by the Holy Scriptures, the sacred writings of God's people. And this shows us that the gospel, therefore, wasn't a new idea. It's not something that God came up with after he had to go with Israel and the law and that kind of didn't work and so he turned to the gospel. Rather, the gospel was always his plan. And it's there throughout the whole Bible. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see that the gospel is about Jesus. He's referred to as God's son. And at the end of those verses, he's called Jesus Christ our Lord. This shows us that the good news is about a person. And his identity gives us clues as to why he is significant. This actually requires a bit of hard work, though, because lying behind these simple statements are lots of big ideas that we need to unpack. So Jesus is a descendant of David. This refers to King David, the greatest king Israel had. He was a faithful man and God blessed him greatly. Now you can look this up in your own time later, but you might like to write down 2 Samuel 7, especially verses 12 to 16. In that passage, God, through one of his prophets, made some big promises to David. He said that after David died, God would raise up one of his offspring and establish his kingdom forever as an enduring kingdom. And God would be a father to this offspring so that he would call him his son. We read elsewhere that this future king would be a mighty warrior who would protect God's people and he would reign in peace forever. What we read here in Romans is that Jesus is that descendant of David. He's the offspring who will have an everlasting kingdom. But how do we know that Jesus specifically is the offspring of David and not any of the other descendants that King David had? Well, Because of verse 4. The Holy Spirit appointed Jesus as the Son of God. Now when I first studied this, I thought Paul was speaking about Jesus' divinity. So his humanity, he's a descendant of David. As to his divinity, he's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. But I actually think Paul means to further explain what it means that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. So remember that promise to, God, uh, to David from God that one of David's descendants would be called God's Son. We actually see this idea in Psalm 2. We read this in verses 6 and 7. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I've become your father. So this psalm was used when a new king was coronated. And it was believed that all Jewish kings, in one sense, were sons of God. Not because they were divine, but because they had a special relationship with God but still the people did look forward to the ultimate son of god the ultimate king the ultimate christ and that's who jesus is he's the everlasting king who rules forever because he's been raised from the dead jesus died a brutal horrible death on the cross he was buried in a tomb but 3 days later he was raised to new life to everlasting life and in this act of resurrection The Spirit of Holiness revealed that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Jesus is indeed the Lord. And actually, the Spirit didn't just reveal Jesus as the Son of God. He appointed or declared Him as the Son of God. It's Jesus' resurrection that gives Him that status, the Son of God. See, He took up office as He burst forth from the grave, as He stood victorious over death. He took on the new role of the exalted Lord of God's present and future kingdom. And this is the good news about Jesus. All of humanity stands separated from God, under God's judgment because of our rebellion against him. We are not worthy of his glorious kingdom. We are not able to attain everlasting life by our efforts. But Jesus came as a man, a descendant of David, died as the saving king, so as to bring an end to death and sin and corruption and darkness and suffering and spiritual bondage. The way to the heavenly kingdom is now open. The way of forgiveness and wholeness and healing and peace and everlasting life through Jesus who has risen from the grave. Christ Jesus reigns in heaven today and he invites you to join him in his kingdom. All you need to do is turn away from your current way of living And turn to Jesus as your Lord. Entrust your life to him. And rather than knowing judgment and suffering, you'll know forgiveness and freedom. This is the gospel of God. And this is what we'll unpack over the coming weeks and months, explaining what this means. Romans is about the gospel. It's about the power of the gospel, which is able to change individuals. It's able to change communities and indeed the world. This is the gospel that Paul was called to preach. And he primarily preached it to Gentiles. Have look at verse 5. Through him, that's Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Now Paul probably just means himself when he says we here. And he has an apostolic mission to specifically preach to the Gentiles. He's to call them to the obedience that comes from faith. Now hold on. That seems a bit confusing, doesn't it? The gospel is about God's grace and mercy and we don't have to earn his favour by our good deeds. So how can Paul talk about obedience? Well, he's not talking about the Gentiles working their way into the kingdom of God through in obedience. Instead, he's speaking about the obedience that comes from those who have faith, from those who are already part of God's kingdom. You see, the gospel transforms people so that we come to obey God and obey our Lord Jesus. When we have faith in Jesus, we're empowered by his spirit to have a changed life. You see, the gospel doesn't just give us a new status. The gospel empowers us for a new way of living. This is an idea found all throughout Paul's letter to the Romans, which leads to our next main point. You'll see it in our outline, number four there. Paul wrote about the powerful gospel so that the church in Rome might be transformed. Now people debate about Paul's purpose in writing this letter, and they'll highlight kind of one section, you know, some of the chapters and downplay other chapters to try and find what's the, the one reason that Paul wrote. They try to find a single focus or purpose. But I think if we take the gospel of God as the big theme of the letter, then we can see there are actually three reasons or three purposes that Paul had in writing about this gospel. There's a theological reason, a pastoral reason, reason and a missiological reason. Now you may feel that one is more important or more obvious than the others uh, to you, uh, but hopefully we'll all be able to see that each of these purposes gives shape to what Paul puts in the letter and how he writes this letter. So, the first one, the theological purpose. Paul sought to bring gospel clarity leading to individual transformation. Uh, In verse 17 of Romans 1, Paul writes this: From the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul labours to show that believing the gospel results in a status change. It's all about faith in Jesus leading to the gift of righteousness. So listen to Paul in his own words. I'm going to read out some different verses throughout his letter. Chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. and It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This transformation of status is for individuals but it also involves a transformation of how we live, both individually but also in community. So this leads to our second purpose that Paul had in writing to the Romans, the pastoral reason. What we see throughout Romans is gospel application leading to community transformation. Now you can look at Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 later, but you'll see there that, that Paul expects belief in the gospel to lead to a new way of thinking and living. And he expands on this through the rest of the, uh, the, the letter after Romans 12. Uh, he even has a focus on how the gospel transforms Christian communities. In particular, we see this in Romans 14 and 15. Uh, have a listen to Romans 14. I'm going to read out verses 1 to 3. You can flip to your Bibles if you want as well. Romans 14, verses 1 to 3. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarrelling over disputable matters... One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Now it's a little bit complex as you work through that chapter to understand what's going on, but this issue arose because of the social context in Rome that we looked at earlier. The Jewish Christians returned to their home city to find the Gentile Christians doing things that they objected to. They were eating non-kosher meat. They weren't observing Sabbaths and festival days. They freely drank wine offered to pagan gods. And the Jewish Christians were horrified at this. Even in chapter 2, we see that they were putting themselves above their Gentile brothers and sisters. Yet the Gentile Christians weren't any better because they were viewing their Jewish brothers and sisters with disdain. They thought they didn't understand the true freedom they had in the gospel. In chapter 11, we even read that some were boasting over the Jewish people. And so there were deep-seated divisions within the church at Rome based on culture and customs and understandings of what the gospel is and how to live it out. And so Paul's explanation of the gospel is not just about helping individual people to be saved and that's it. There's also a pastoral purpose. What it means to live daily as a Christian and to live in community with other Christians. See, the Christians in Rome, they were to accept one another and to focus on what's important. This unity will then help them to focus on mission, which leads to Paul's third and final purpose in writing this letter the missiological, or if you like, mission purpose. So, Paul was hoping for gospel partnership with the Romans which would lead to worldwide transformation. In chapter 1, Paul says that he had long hoped to visit the Christians in Rome. He'd never been there before, but he wanted to go so he could preach the gospel there too. But turn to Romans chapter 15. You'll see the passage in your Connect card as well. well let's have a look at Romans 15, verses 23 and 24. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions... And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now Paul is always the strategist, thinking months and years ahead. And he saw Spain as the new frontier for gospel mission. It was on the other side of the empire. And Rome was the gateway to this new region. Therefore, the church in Rome was the perfect group to form a gospel partnership with. They could provide a suitable stopover after he'd gone down to Jerusalem and then headed over to Rome before he goes to Spain. They could refresh him and encourage him, but he'd also receive financial and other material support and most importantly, spiritual support as he asked them to pray for him. And so in one sense, the letter to the Romans is actually a supporter's letter. It's a sort of letter that a missionary might write to our church, outlining who they are, kind of their credentials, showing that they've got some good Christian understanding and integrity, and then asking us to join with them. And so it makes sense that Paul would explain the gospel clearly to these people that he'd never met. He wants them to see that he's the real deal. He explains well how Jews and Gentiles should relate to each other. Because this shows that even though he's the apostle to the Gentiles, he still has a heart for the Jewish people. And in chapter 16, he greets the many people he already knows in Rome. So the church can actually go and speak to them. They're kind of like his referees. And they can go interview them and say, tell us about Paul. And so putting this all together, we can say that the theme of Romans is the gospel of God. It touches on every chapter, every topic, every section. And as we read this book, we see the power of the gospel. The power to save individuals, bringing them from death to life. And the power to change how people think and live and speak. It has the power to change communities. And the power to drive mission so that the world is changed. This is one of the main reasons why we're studying Romans from now until the end of the year. At DPC, we long to see 10% of the city of Darabin deeply satisfied in knowing and serving Jesus. If we want God to achieve this through us, we need to be gripped by the gospel first, don't we? Because it's only through believing the gospel that people can come to know Jesus and be satisfied in Jesus. And we want to work together as a church so that we can do this outreach, so we can spread the gospel. So we need to be getting along together. We need to let the gospel change us individually, but also change us as a community. We need to see ourselves as partners in the mission. Each year, DPC has a vision and commitment series. We work through a book of the Bible and we think more about our church's gospel vision and we talk about plans for for next year. We consider how we can spur each other on and how we can use our time and talents and treasure to work towards that gospel vision. Normally this would happen a little bit later in the year, but we're starting early because, well, we're starting Romans. Why not start now and take a little bit more time to think about our plans, to make sure that our vision is shaped truly by the powerful gospel and so we're going to take an extended approach as we explore this book of Romans and so our prayer should be that we'd be gripped by the gospel in the way that Paul wanted the Romans to be gripped by the gospel so that they'd be transformed but partner with him in further gospel work so we should pray that we're open to hearing God challenge us to live out the gospel and to promote the gospel We should pray that our church's vision will be in line with God's vision that's revealed in this letter. We should pray that this time of exploring Romans will be a pivotal moment in our church's life, but also a pivotal moment in the lives of those in the community who will hear about Jesus. And so let me finish by asking you this question. Are you ready for Romans? You've heard the warning. You've had a bit of an appetizer. Hopefully you've seen that while Romans is a dangerous book, it's worth engaging with. It changes people, it will change you. That's because it's about the power of the gospel. It will challenge your ideas about yourself, about God, and about life. It will challenge the way you view other people. It will challenge your priorities and your lifestyle. It will make you feel uncomfortable, but it will also bring you great comfort. It will bring you great joy, but it will also bring you great sadness as you realise that there is a world out there filled with lost people. It will lift your guilt and ease your shame as you find the freedom that is brought by the gospel. It will guide your actions and words as you seek to live for Jesus. Now if you don't know Jesus yet, it's great that you're here. And I encourage you to take up the challenge to let this ancient letter speak to you as a whole new way of thinking and living is made possible through the good news about Jesus. If you do know Jesus, then I encourage you to entrust yourself to God's Spirit as he continues to transform you and shape you. And so may God unite us through his powerful gospel as we together hold out the good news to a lost world. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gospel. The gospel of God, which teaches us about you, points us to you. Which teaches us that we cannot bring anything for our salvation. We just have to trust in you and your death and rising. Please help us to do that. But also help us to see that the gospel transforms us for daily living, for living as a community, And it equips us and gives us courage and hope that as we take the gospel to a lost world that you will be at work through your spirit. Amen.